Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten Podcast. And joining me on today's show is Dan Tapiero, a man with over 30 years of trading experience in what you would call legacy financial markets. Well, they'd have to be legacy and financial if he's been there for 30 years. But he came to Bitcoin as well. And uh, I'm sure many of you follow him on Bitcoin Twitter and enjoy his commentary. I'm hoping that by having Dan on, we would get more legacy finance guys or older people to listen at least to the episode and uh, you know, think about exploring Bitcoin a little bit more. So thanks for coming on, Dan. Really appreciate it. Had a great time. Before we do get into the show, make sure you are checking your travel regulations to see if you can get to the States. Things do seem to be easing up. I'm getting reports from on the ground that people are getting into the US without having to show any documentation at all, even tests, let alone uh, proof of medical procedures. You know what I mean. So check it. And if you can get to the conference, make sure you go and check out using the code BITTEN to save 10%. It's a four-day event. You know where it is. It's Miami Beach, 6th to the 9th of April. So it's right around the corner. Uh, like I said, go use that code. You'll get 10% discount. And they've got four days. It's going to be industry day and then the two days of the conference with all the announcements, all the usual big names are going to be there. Check out the speakers on the website, all in the show notes, and then Sound Money Fest to, to round that all off. If you are not stacking sats, you should be. In the US, you can use swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. These guys are going to be at the conference, of course. They have a huge presence there and they're doing great work across the US. Across Europe, you can use Relay, R-E-L-A-I, and also BitcoinReserve.com. Bitcoin Reserve have got you covered. If you need to put on a bigger size, they will offer you a white glove service, 50 grand and over. And CoinCorner.com are an exchange out of the UK, Isle of Man, who are doing great work. They can help you stack, smash buy, teach you about lightning, follow Danny and the guys. They're doing a brilliant job over there. But you've got to make sure you take control and you can use a hardware wallet, do your own research. But I can recommend the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only edition. That's by Shift Crypto, a Swiss based company. Excellent piece of kit. It's so important that you do this. Get your coins off these apps, off these exchanges. Make sure they're in your control. This is exactly where we need to drive people to be self-sovereign and in control of your money. There's one more thing, big shout out for BitcoinDay.io, who are going to be holding small one-day conferences all over the US at the moment. So make sure you check that out. And you can use code OB10 to get 10% discount on your tickets. So, so much going on in this space. So much coming around the corner. Dan talks about this a little bit in his interview. Uh, he is managing a fund and they are looking specifically across Lightning to invest in companies that are doing some some work there but as you will as you will no doubt learn throughout this interview we are very early so keep stacking guys keep orange pilling as many people as you can thank you everybody for listening to the show i hope you enjoy this one take care and catch you afterwards 
All right, we got Dan Tapiero in the house. Dan, nice to meet you. Nice to be here. I'm glad we finally connected. It's been a while. It's yeah, we were trying to set this up for a while, and then the, the world went crazier than the last two years was crazy. So we postponed that. And I, I actually I I just reread through the DMs. You're like, should we leave it a couple of weeks? We might we might have a few more things to talk about. <laughs> yeah, we, we predicted that. So that, that's one good thing. But uh, all right, so Lauren's, Lauren's got the first question. I, I'm not sure that you're aware that this was going to happen, Dan. So out of left field for you, uh, an 11-year-old question. Uh, so my question is, what do you like about Bitcoin? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, that's a good one because there are a lot of things I like about it. Uh, I like the fact that it's independent. Um, I also like the fact that the math that underpins it um, is unique and that that math, which again is the solving of the Byzantine generals problem, uh, I think is a, you know, not just unique, but um, it's a landmark um, it's a, an important, I think, historic uh, development. And I've always been a student of history. I studied history in school. Um, and I look at you know, the, the 30, 40 years of cryptographic, scientific, mathematical research that came before uh, the publishing of the white paper. And that just blows me away. Um, you know, Again, I didn't come from that heavy math, uh, computer science background. And so I didn't, you know, I had no idea that there was even a, a Byzantine generals problem, right? Um, it just didn't. So the fact that something like that, a historic invention underpins it, uh, to me just puts a, you know, uh, a serious stamp. Uh, it's a reaffirmation of the, the, the uniqueness, the quality, um, you know, uh, of Bitcoin. So I, I hope that, does that answer a little bit? Like I, I see it as like a phenomenal historical event thing, right? And we're getting to live through it and participate in it. Uh, I think it's incredible. Yeah. So is that a funny answer? Maybe, no? It's an interesting answer. Okay, all right. All right. Well, and you, you of course, remember what the Byzantine general's problem was, Lauren. Danny Scott, Danny Scott has explained this to you at length from, from Coin Corner. He, uh, oh, poor Danny. Like, wait, the, brain functioning. Brain functioning. It's just a problem of distributed trust. And he solved that problem, you know, that uh, now you don't really need an intermediary uh, between two counterparties. So you can send me value without having someone in the middle who is going to be a rent taker, as they call them. Right. Okay. Right. So it's sort of like magic. Like, how does that happen? There's no one in between us. So to me, it's very it's magical like almost, because how does it flow through the air, right? I'm an older guy, 
um, you know, it almost seems like a, you know, fantastic. Um, I always think of it sort of as like a four dimensional flying car kind of thing. Like, what does that even look like? Right. Um, so anyway, maybe I've uh, exaggerated it because I don't come from that background, but it strikes me that it's a pretty phenomenal um, historic uh, type of invention that we're living through. So okay. any more questions? No. No? No. All right. I hope cool. you own some Bitcoin. Do you own some a little bit? You yes. have a wallet? That's good. I actually that get some popular. once a month. Hey. There you go. She's yeah. a stacker. She's a sat stacker. She's yeah. DCAing. Uh, she, she gets paid some sats for, for helping out on the podcast. Uh, you right. know, or in the garden. All, all of that scheduling you do, right? Um, yeah. 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 All the scheduling I do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she, oh, I she see asked, who's running the show over there. Oh yeah, she she asks the first question. She takes all the glory, and uh, yeah, I just take I I I. He just catch, does the work. I I do all the work and catch all the crap from the plebs. Lauren Lauren, uh, she just breezes in and out and uh, is. Uh, what if you didn't have me? What would have happened, huh? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, I blame Andy Edstrom because he he was the first one that she interviewed, and and he was a big old teddy bear. Oh, I like Andy. How's he doing? All right, he's doing great. He's doing great. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, to shill his book, Why Buy Bitcoin, listeners. Go go and read it. Um, okay. Do you want to say yeah. good night then? Okay, see you. Bye. Good night. Yeah, see Sleep you. Sleep well. Thank you. Ooh, thanks, Dan. Uh, right. We, well, we'll try and rattle through this because uh, I know you've got to, to stop at the, the top of the hour. But uh, just one thing right there. Um, talking about uh, the Byzantine general's problem and, and, and solving that um invention or discovery for big i think uh because i i sort of think it's both i mean i talk about this a lot or i think about it a lot um you know maybe the in it's a discovery of the math but an invention of the network um you know i i don't know i it's a very good question it's a subtle point um we can just say mind-blowing <laughs> you know i don't know uh yeah i mean it's interesting because you sort of think that it definitely came about as a result of 08 um i think that people really felt and that was the first time and again i've been in the financial market since the early 90s um, and it's been, you know, it's a, it's a pretty fair field. I mean, there were some guys in the early 90s, some big investors who tried to coup the treasury auction. They all got into trouble. You know, um, that was in the early 90s. You've probably already been aware of it. But like people generally, you know, were, were fair players. You didn't have, anyway, that was my, my experience. And 08, there was something about 08 that struck people as unfair, why did Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley get to turn themselves into banks and not have to pay the piper? And I think that the way that was done was done in such an obvious way that even I put in quotes, the plebs uh, said, hey, look, that's just not right. Like, why is it that our money 
not only are we going to debase it to pay for these guys, but the guys who are debasing the currency to pay for those guys are their buddies, you know, their ex Goldman guys in treasury or whatever it is. Like that just, that just didn't seem fair, right? And I think out of that sort of very rich, and again, a rich intellectual um, environment. Uh, and I say that because, you know, the 08 crisis really galvanized people to think about things that they hadn't before. Um, you know, I never heard of anyone talking about fiat currency in the 90s. Okay. And again, I was deep in this world. I was trading, you know, that even in, you know, the early 2000s, debasement of currency. I mean, if you were a gold guy like me or experienced trading and investing in gold, you heard those things. It was a very small group of people. Then you have 08 and all of a sudden it galvanized people, you know, to think about what's really going on in our financial system. How is money really made? My daughter, uh, Bettina, once asked me that, and I was so excited. I can't remember if she was in sixth or seventh grade. And she's like, well, where does this money come from, right? And my, of course, my wife there, you know, looks at me and with a big smile, like I've been waiting my whole life for one of my kids to ask me that question. And, uh, you know, we spent 30 minutes talking about it. But I think 08 um, got people to think about these issues. And then I think it was, you know, out of that environment came the white paper. Like it would not have happened, at least in the period, you know, the 20 years before, there wasn't really that intellectual bubbling, that interest, right? And again, I think it was driven by the fact that people really felt, you know, the, the writers of the Satoshi white paper, Satoshi, whoever it is, I think they felt that, you know, the existing system was unfair. How do we make it fair, right? Yeah. Um, so I joined financial markets in 1995 on spot dollar mark desk in, in London. As for, which your, firm, for which firm? For Tullet. Uh, so the, that was a broker broker. That was yeah. an interbank broker. So yeah. I'm sure you you were on some portion of one of my dollar mark trades from that period. I was on spot dollar mark. Uh, yeah. where were, you, were you a hedge fund or were you? Yeah, I was bank? at Tiger in the early 90s and then Steinhard Partners and then SAC Capital and then Duquesne. Right. Um, and um, but I, in the 90s, I mean, dollar mark was... It was the one. This is bread and butter, though, right? <laughs> yeah. Bread and butter. Well, yeah, I, I walked into the, the, the lion's den of the dollar mark spot A desk in, in one of the biggest shops in London uh, that was being run by John Goldsmith at the time. But like mm -hmm. the brokers, we, we couldn't get to speak to you guys. Like there, there's no way we could touch a hedge fund. It was just the banks. The banks yeah, of course. Up. Yeah, like, of course. It, that was just... Uh, they needed to take their commission. So if we yeah. talked directly to you... We would, they needed to, Goldman and Morgan, they needed to sit in between us, the Tigers, mm -hmm. because they needed to take their commission, right? There was uh, a, a baptism of fire for me. But like you, I'd never heard of the word fiat currency. And I worked in fiat currency for 18 years in total uh, for an exchange yeah. whole career. Uh, 
good. And now I look back and it's like, my God. And, and 08, when 08 happened, what a time. What a time to be, um, what a, time to be a broker. You know, the, the, all of these banks trying to unwind their position, uh, you know, the, the counterparty risk they held against Lehman Brothers and, and whoever else. Mm-hmm. And you're just sitting there. And I'd been through, when was Leeson? That was a back end of the 90s, right? So like you said, the, the guys that got caught out usually did get punished. Leeson got punished. The Sokgen got, guy got punished. There was the, the, option, the, the foreign exchange options team at NAB. They got caught red-handed. They got punished. Then all of a sudden, 08. Yeah, I mean, it, it did feel like, right, that, that there was sort of fairness. I mean, it wasn't, people weren't taking massive, advantage of the system i mean it just there were checks and balances and you know there was so much opportunity in the markets also then from the on the macro side you know you there was no there was no need right to you know do anything not okay right you just there was lots of opportunity you had to work hard um very interesting things coming out of the erm crisis and you know the asian crisis and there was a time there where free markets, you know, did reign. You know, the markets were free. The authorities tried not to intervene in the markets, let, let the markets work. You know, that's coming out of Reagan. And, um, you know, I, it, just, it just felt like there was a, a, an even and fair playing field, right? Yeah. Now the year we come, we seem to have come full circle. I remember like the mid nineties, um, the uh, Gorbachev, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Russia. Every week it felt, or perhaps sometimes even every day, there was a new uh, rumor about his health, about his heart uh, having a heart attack, and all, of, and that would mm-hmm. send the markets absolutely do lally uh, for a period of around twenty to twenty five minutes, and then. News would come out that it was, uh, well, I guess we would call it fake news nowadays. Yeah. yeah. But, but here we are in the same, like, um, yeah, I, I know you don't sit on those desks anymore and, and you're, you're not as um, kind of reactive. They were reactionary days, weren't they? That, 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 they were fast, crazy days. Uh, what do you see going on now compared to like uh, back in those days, uh, you know, with, with like this, much better understanding of macro that you've developed over your years of trading. Well, in what sense do you mean? Because that's a very broad topic. Uh, right. So I'm imagining you in, in the beginning of your career, um, more reactionary than you are now. Uh, oh, you mean trading? Yeah. Oh yeah. I never, well, so my first real job, I mean, really was at Tiger and, and Julian was a, you know, more, he was an investor um, and it was a, at the time, it was only a $3 billion fund and it was considered the largest in the world with, uh, with Soros. I think they were neck and neck in the early nineties, but we, we, you know, to make 30% return, that's a billion dollars. And so you, you can't be trading around dollar mark. You take structural positions based on research. There's a lot of process, a lot of back and forth, and it was fundamental analysis and you're coming up with scenarios about how the future might look and you were taking you know good risk reward bets where there was asymmetry and you know also interest rates were very high back then and europe had its worst recession since the war so it made 
you know, since that rates would come down. I mean, Spanish rates, I think that was the first trade I did. You had rates above 10% with Germany in recession. So that didn't make sense to me or to Julian or, you know, anyone at the time. Um, so, you know, there was a very clear bet there. Um, you know, it's that sort of the heyday, the 90s were the heyday uh, of macro. There were opportunities everywhere. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the, the wall coming down, or Russia and, you know, the wall coming down. I mean, all of Russia opened up in Eastern Europe. Um, you know, that opened up, you know, Europe, um, you know, Asia. Again, in the late 90s, you had that Asian crisis, which was, yep. you know, a fundamental um, realignment of value, right? The pegs were not, you know, priced at the correct price. And if you'd lived through the ERM crisis, uh, you knew that, you know, pegs that were not sustainable, that were deflationary and forcing your stock market down 70, 80%, were not going to continue. But um, I mean, today it's a very different environment. I don't focus on the old markets anymore. I mean, my, my only point before was that I never really traded actively, you know, reactionary as you were, you know, reacting to events, a risk on risk off. I mean, I, I never really involved was too involved in that. I would make 80% of my money every year came from two or three bets. Right. And the other 20% was, you know, the times I got sucked into trading things, maybe that I shouldn't have. And, you know, you learn over the years, you know, I, I, you know, have a, back then I had a 16 year track record. Uh, you know, you learn all sorts of things. I mean, the first few years are not like the last few years, right? Well, well Dan, we, we didn't, do, yeah. we didn't have computers. Like, well, no, we had the Bloomberg. That's what I had. I used to transact over the Bloomberg. So I would send a Bloomberg message, like buy me $50 mark. And then he, I would get a message back. Okay, you're done at this price, right? Yeah. Sometimes I get on the phone, but if I were doing three or four trades at the same time, like often I did at Tiger, you couldn't be on four phones at one time. So the message function within Bloomberg, and this is circa 92, yeah. 93 was very uh, helpful. I mean, that was my computer. That, that, that was it, right? There were no emails. There was no, uh, right, no, what's going on in the market? Like, no, <laughs> like, think about this. I, 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 try and, I try and explain this to my kids. It's like when I started work, there was, um, we didn't have Bloomberg. We had uh, a Reuters terminal, but just like one in the corner uh, that the detail clerk would use to pass details um, to the banks once uh, the, the, the deals had been put through, right? Mm -hmm. So how, what my, my question is, how on earth, were you trying to plug yourself into macro events in a world where you were just limited to, you didn't even have squawk box or anything like that. You, you wouldn't have had a television, I would imagine, even on the desk. So you, you, it's like literally word of mouth or well, newspapers. Well, yeah, I mean, the Financial Times back then was my Bible. I read that religiously. I learned a huge amount from it. Now I think the paper is almost useless. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, it's unfortunate. But back then, it was, I required all of my analysts to read the FT front to back every single day. We were getting investment ideas from the FT. So the journal, less so uh, because it was very American focused and again, global macro, you know, global. 
the fact that you know I was an American investing in Spanish bonds. I'll never forget. <laughs> I went to buy some my personal account in at Refco, which was a futures yep. trading company back in the day, mm-hmm. and I was the first person at Refco to buy Spanish bond futures. And so it took two months for them to set up the paperwork. So to think that just me, some young guy in New York is the first guy to trade a Spanish bond. It's like, it's not Mars, right? But, you know, I, I, I think that that was the, the, the communication was so, so much slower. And, you know, you're working with guys 20, 30 years older than you as well, who had grown up in the 60s and 70s and, and 80s, and that was not really a global world. Um, but again, you, this, you started to make a transition. There was more connectivity. Um, and so you could still have a little bit of an edge. Um, I hate to use that word, but you know, not every 23-year-old guy on Wall Street was looking at Spanish bond futures, right? So you could have, you could have an edge a little bit. You know, today you, you probably have, uh, you know, you have a hundred thousand people looking at uh, the yeah. euro exchange rate every minute, right? It's not, yeah. How did you walk into that position? Like, what, what was? Uh... No, well, I mean, I, I was aware of the global, you know, investment landscape and world, Mike grandfather had been uh, had his own merchant bank in London in the 30s and 40s and was very involved in all sorts of different types of investments. So I was aware that that world existed, um, you know, as a child and, um, you know, had stocks uh, myself. Um, so it was not completely uh, coming into it, but, you know, from nowhere. But I I studied history uh, and philosophy, really, or intellectual history at, at Brown and did my BAMA there. And it was just in my last year, I, I realized, look, I was not really interested in being an academic. Um, and I was very, I was an athlete. I had a lot of energy. You know, I, I liked the process of assessing risk. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to make some money, too. And so I read the Market Wizards book and I read the Alchemy of Finance book, the Soros book. And I just thought, oh boy, this is like right down the fairway for me. I'm going to get to read 10 or 20 things and then come up with an idea and then explain the idea in a research paper, let's call it. I was like, I, I did that at five year, for five years at Brown. I said, but now instead of getting the paper back with an A or a B or whatever it is, I'm going to actually have the market tell me if I'm right. And if I'm going to make money, if I'm right, I'm going to lose money if I'm wrong. And it's not going to be some subjective, you know, analysis by a professor. It's going to be, you know, the market, the opinions of the, all the people in the markets telling me whether I'm right or wrong. I just found that conceptually very attractive. And basically I've been doing the exact same thing for 30 years. I mean, more or less the exact same thing, except now I only look at crypto uh, and I don't do anything in the traditional world anymore ex- except for gold. I mean, gold, I'm, I have my physical gold uh, company that I started with a partner that now is in its 12th 
maybe 13th year. Um, it's been a you know great run where as far the last I checked, the third largest vaulter of gold in the world now outside of the banking system. So um, you know, that's just been that's been a good business. And so that business I'm involved with a little bit sitting on the board, but, um, and in gold itself, I still keep a very close eye on. Okay. Less so silver, I kind of gave up on silver maybe 15 years ago. Uh, silver just always, you know, I was consistently making money in gold, but I somehow wasn't in silver. And uh, so I stayed, I, I learned that trade in trading when, you try to do something over and over and it doesn't work, you stop. I'm sure some nickel traders are thinking uh, the same kind of thing over this last two weeks, uh, mm. watching that nightmare. But the, it's interesting that you say you don't look at the tr traditional world anymore. I, I I am the same. I, I rarely even glance across it, but I fear, Dan, we're going to get pulled back in because like today I saw Goldman Sachs are announcing their OTC uh, Bitcoin or crypto. I don't know what they're calling it. Trading, der derivative trading desk, uh, which is going to be cash settled. So now we, we're going to have this next layer of financial wizardry coming out of the usual suspects that are going to start cash speculating on an underlying asset which they have absolutely zero understanding of, which I don't know. I, I would like to get your opinion on. Well, they're smart guys. So at some point they'll figure it out. Um, but I think it's, it's more them coming into the space rather than us having to necessarily deal with them. Like they're, they're light years behind. Um, and there are many large companies in the space that are, you know, far superior to any of the legacy companies. I mean, you just take a look at a, a DCG or a Gemini or a Binance or a GSR. I mean, these companies, they're big, they're making billions of dollars. Um, it's going to take a, a long time for these legacy guys not just to catch up. I mean, I don't know why they, they haven't been just trying to buy those companies, but maybe there's regulatory things in there. I never forget, it was Morgan Stanley bought, I think E-Trade for $13 billion. This was two, three years ago. And at the time Coinbase was trading at five to 7 billion. And I just thought to myself, my goodness, Morgan Stanley really could have bought Coinbase like easily, easily. Um, and it would, would have made them, you know, certainly the premier investment house, I think, in the world. Um, but instead, they bought E-Trade uh, for, for twice the price or for, you know, more. So, again, that, was a, that wasn't too long ago. I think that was 18 or 19, 18, um, sort of suggested to me just how far away they were. Um, but I think it's too late. I mean, Binance is e easily a $300 billion company. Um, and just in terms of, you know, what I've heard and the work I've seen. So, you know, that's already significantly more than those companies I've mentioned um, because they're making a lot of money and they're very innovative and right, cutting edge. And 
the regulatory stuff, as it becomes clear, everyone is going to comply. I don't, I'm not worried about that. Everyone always is asking, well, what if the government bans it? Well, what if the government just puts out some clear rules, then everyone's gonna follow those rules, right? And of course you always have a handful of bad actors, but they eventually get weeded out, right? So um, I, I, I'm not, worried about us having to deal with the legacy world. I think it's more that the legacy world is going to try to come in and, you know, they're very smart people. They'll, they'll, they'll figure out their niche, right? Because this, as I call it, digital asset ecosystem, which to me is, it's Bitcoin, you know, all the projects I call, I, I think Bitcoin and Ethereum, you, maybe some of your listeners don't agree, but I think Bitcoin and Ethereum are pretty established in different ways. Um, you know, Bitcoin for me is that pristine collateral. Uh, there is no replication of Bitcoin. It just, it's its own thing. And Ethereum, you know, was carved off of Bitcoin. It's programmable. There are many use cases. And, and Ethereum really isn't being used in the way that I would use Bitcoin. Um, even though they're trying by, you know, by burning all the supply, which I frankly think was unnecessary, but they, they've actually added this, this component to it. But even with burning the supply, it's not, um, I don't want to store a value, you know, that means a whole bunch of different things to different people, but it's just not Bitcoin. So, and then you have all the, what I call venture capital projects, right? You know, the Solanas and all of that, that's all venture. Um, and I think all of those things exist in this digital asset ecosystem. So I don't have a, you know, Bitcoin, look, Bitcoin is special, it's its own thing. Nothing in this world exists without Bitcoin. So let's, that's very clear. And um, but I'm not big on stifling human innovation. And if the guys out in Silicon Valley or in Singapore or in Sug want to come up with some great ideas, that's, you know, it's not going to be Bitcoin, but that doesn't mean that they can't come up with great ideas that have certain use cases. Um, you know, not everything needs the intense security apparatus that the Bitcoin network is, right? You don't need 6,000 confirmations for, you know, buying a cup of coffee or whatever it is. And I know on top of the Bitcoin network, we now have Lightning and that's making some progress, but I just did a call with my team just now. And, you know, we're looking for companies to invest in that are leveraged to the growth in Lightning. But the problem is that, you know, we, are the minimum size market valuation for investments we make is 500 million. And there are no, there are no, there's not one company in the space. And we mapped out the lightning world and there are 50 different, you know, entities in that world. There's not one that has a value of over 500 million. So I'm waiting for them to grow a little more, right? Cause we invest in 10 T in mid to late stage businesses in this digital asset ecosystem, um, we, we, we're not venture, we're not focused on, you know, early stage protocols or tokens or anything else. So, I mean, I'd be thrilled 
I, I, I love the Lightning Project, and I think it's getting, I don't know what you uh, know about it, but I mean, I think it's gaining traction, and certainly in El Salvador, um, there are other places, right? We are so early. Then, yeah. like we we exactly. are so early. Like that's exactly what you're saying right now. Um, give it, yeah. You, you might be waiting around a, a handful of years uh, for that 500 million price point. Um, well, I don't. You know what? You'd be surprised. Um, yeah. I thought that too when I started this fund two years ago or a year and a half ago. But the speed of growth has just blown my, you mm. know, all my expectations. Um, you know, out the window, it just, you think that, and then you go on vacation and you come back and poof, you know, so well, I mean, you, you must have now 600 because they've made, you know, they just made, and it's, it's being driven by revenue growth. It's not, mm-hmm. some of it is multiple expansion, but a lot of it is just a lot of guys making a lot of money in this space right now. You must have taken a, a decent close look at, at strike at what Jack Mallers is doing. And like, for me, that that's crazy that like, you know, just bypassing the foreign exchange market is like, I love what he's doing. I love what he's doing. But again, he doesn't charge anything. So there's no revenue. And, you know, part of the mandate for my investors is to invest in companies that are making a certain amount of revenue. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, you know, there are great things going on out there that we don't participate in. and we don't own, you know, cryptocurrency or the projects. Um, I mean, I do myself, but we don't in the fund. Um, and there are a whole bunch of reasons for that. I mean, we have institutional clients who legally are not allowed to own um, uh, cryptocurrency. I mean, I, I, one right. of the state pension funds in the fund is just not allowed to. But I really look. I see us as a, a gateway for people to get into the space to learn about it. And I I do think if I look at my LP base, you know, we've brought a whole bunch of people, you know, who day one didn't know the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum. And all of a sudden now are engaged. Um, They're spending more time. They're making more investments in the space. So, you know, you got to start somewhere. Uh, and, And it's a complex space. It's not, you know, even understanding Bitcoin, just Bitcoin. I mean, it took me months. I mean, for it, to, I, when I was introduced to it in 2014, I didn't really go deep down the rabbit hole until the end of 18, early 19. <laughs> and then it took me six months. And that's just Bitcoin. And Ethereum, forget it. I mean, I, you can try, but if you get deep into the weeds there, it's much harder for someone without you know, a, a computer science background. Who gave uh, you that, that heads up in 2014? Do you remember? Oh, was yeah, it, wasn't, was it, it wasn't a person. Uh, my firm, the gold company, GBI, we integrated with a company called BitReserve, which today is the Uphold Wallet. And we were the first place that I'm aware of where you could buy and sell gold to buy and sell Bitcoin or Ripple on, you know, through the BitReserve slash Uphold Wallet. So that company, the gold company, spent a year doing that integration. So I don't remember who was specifically at the firm. There were a bunch of younger guys at the gold company who were involved. Um, I can remember one of them specifically. I remember he bought Bitcoin at $2 
and he ended up selling it at 95, right? And I thought, oh my goodness, this guy, like I hadn't had that kind of hit in my entire trading career from two <laughs> to 95. And I was like, wow. Um, but again, it was still a very small niche market. The market cap was probably less than $10 billion. And look, as you know, from trading dollar mark, I mean, we used to trade currencies trading trillions a day a $10 billion asset is barely traded, right? So um, it was through the gold company. Yeah. You, how, how early did you start appearing on Real Vision? Because I fell down the rabbit hole around the same time as year, to, uh, same time of time, same time of year, 2014. Uh, I'd heard about it before that, just by virtue of sitting on the desk and, um, you know, being, being in that space. Um, but it wasn't until Real Vision launched and Grant and uh, Raul were interviewing people like Tour, Demista, Wences, Trace. Uh, that's when it really just started like clicking for me um, to get off my butt and pick up some books. Not that you could find them then, but like, you know, just I got to learn about this. This is crazy. Yeah. Um, so I've known Raul since the 90s. And, uh, you know, he has a, he had an investment letter. It's actually more of a research uh, note, hundred pages that he puts out every, every month. So I was one of the initial early subscribers when he launched that business in, I don't know, whenever it was, 04, 05, 06. And once a year for a bunch of those guys, there was an offsite and it's like 10 guys getting together, Raul's in the Caymans, you go down to the Caymans, you know, and, and yeah, everybody presents their favorite idea. And so I think it was in either 2013, it was 2012, 13, 14, I can't remember what year, um, he presented Bitcoin as his favorite idea. And there were a handful of other guys as well. And some who in that round table who presented Bitcoin, some of them are very well-known people in the Bitcoin world today. And that's all they do, um, you know, who presented that as their favorite idea. So again, I was aware of Bitcoin. There were people I respected who presented it. Um, it wasn't really until the gold company's integration, though, that I really, I mean, I listened to the investment days. I got it a little bit. And the problem was that, you, you know, in trying to understand what it is or what it was, I would get stopped by things, by phrases and words I didn't understand, like the proof of work algorithm. Like, what is that? And how does that work? And what does that mean? And I don't understand it. And so like my brain just gave up. And, you know, so, or, you know, we're just understanding how the blockchains connect and like, how are those transactions actually validated? Like, how does that work? I mean, it just didn't, it, it, I, it didn't come together, even though I, because the guys at the GMI, that's Rolls Roundtable and the Caymans, they were looking at it more from an investment perspective, which I understood and I got that, but I couldn't be comfortable making the investment if I didn't understand it down to its brass tacks, down to its like basic nuts and bolts, 
and I couldn't get there. So that was kind of the, the problem. Um, so the first time I spoke in Raul, I, I was the second person that he interviewed in 2014. They had a master's 2014 or 2016. No, 2014, they had a, um, he wanted to do a like market master's mm -hmm. thing. And the first guy he interviewed was Mark Hart. Yep. And I was the second guy. Yep. And then I think Novo was the third guy. Um, I'm sure Novo would have been first, but he probably just has such a busy schedule, wasn't available. But I was available and I talked about like my experience uh, as a macro PM. I retired at that point from money management in 14. Um, and so, you know, easier to schedule me. And, but that was, you know, I talked a lot about the gold business at that point in gold. Um, and then I had another interview with them. Uh, I actually, the second thing I think I did was I interviewed Dwight Anderson. He asked me to, whether I'd interviewed Dwight, uh, you know, who Osprey, the, the commodity funds, he's sort of one of the top commodity investors and traders, another ex-Tiger guy. Um, but I didn't talk about Bitcoin until the summer of 19. So I, I kind of went down that rabbit hole in you know, Q1 19. And part of that process for me was convincing Raul to get back in because he was in at 200, he sold at 2000, which people in the Bitcoin world give him a lot of crap for, I don't know why, like that's a great trade. So he missed the move at, you know, up to 20,017. And then in 19, he just was not interested. He kept talking about Tether and I was going down the rabbit hole and I was sending him emails every single day. Raul, come on, this is real. This is real. This is what you're missing. And then he got back in and, and then, you know, after a bunch of discussions with me, I said, look, the smartest sort of under 35 year old people I've ever met are in this space. You need to start a crypto real vision because this is an extremely rich intellectual environment um, in this world. There's lots of debate. Guys like Tour de Meester, you mentioned, brilliant guys. You know, um, you've got the Castle Island guys, lots of young, smart guys, great thinkers, you know, wanting to discuss in an open forum. So Twitter is one forum, but you know, so then he launched that Real Vision Crypto and it's been doing great. And I think he's, he has brought a ton of people into the space. I think he's, you people, you know, now I know they're like, oh, Raul's a shit coiner. I mean, I don't know, like Twitter, you have to ignore a lot of the nonsense that goes on there. Even though I think it's extremely valuable, Twitter, um, extremely valuable. I really enjoy it. But um, Raul's done a huge amount to increase the adoption of Bitcoin, okay? He's more interested in Ethereum today. He's made that clear. He thinks it's gonna go up more. I know why, I get it, you know, et cetera. That doesn't mean he hasn't done a huge amount for the space, yeah. What, when, when you look at like uh, your, your other kind of, uh, well, your whole network, uh, and th there, there are those guys that just, do, do you think there's some guys that are just never gonna come? to the table like uh that they're, they're just uh too deep down the rabbit hole of 
normal finance um, to use, you know, for want of a better term, that will just never well, open their well, eyes to it? Yeah, but, you know, there are people who two years ago, you would have said never turned and, and they've turned. Um, I think it's an age thing, to be honest. I think the older you are, not entirely, but for the most part, the less sense it makes to you. And I think the younger you are, the more sense it makes to you. Because look, I think the statistic is uh, under the age of 25, people spend eight hours a day online. So you sleep for eight hours, hopefully you have eight hours uh, online. And then the other eight hours, I mean, you have to eat, you have to move around. I mean, hours is a lot of your waking day. It's half of your waking day, uh, awake day. So I think people, you know, if their lives are going to be online in the metaverse or however you want to call it, um, it's perfectly normal to think that, you know, that there should be a digital representation of value and that items that you have in your life that you enjoy, you can have those items online in the metaverse. So I just, I think the people who can't come around to it, it's just because it's an age thing and it is i've never seen anything demarcated like this so much yeah and that's what i want to touch on for those people that are listening you know somebody with 30 years trading experience that has deep knowledge of macro um you would have like myself probably sat next to the the snake oil traders the the, the guys that you can tell immediately aren't really um in it for for fair play uh there's a hell of a lot of um charlatan kind of hand waving around uh, technical analysis in some some occasions um you're a fundamentals guy i, I think at heart yeah and when you look I mean, at I, Bitcoin, trust me i look at technicals i used to i mean you know they're very important um especially for entry and ent and exit um but no at the heart of it i'm a thematic thesis driven you know, fundamental guy. So when you look at Bitcoin, fundamentals, asymmetry, give us your thesis. Like, you know, what sets you on fire? Well, I mean, it's, it's I, I think it's certainly the, I kind of touched on this in the very beginning. I mean, I do think it's a, um, a, a special, unique, historic invention. So it's like, what's that worth, you know? I always say it's sort of like uh, an invention like the as important, or maybe more than the combustion engine or a discovery like the discovery of electricity. And I think that it does have the power to be the arbiter of all truth for humanity. So what's that worth? Um, you know, it can be that tracking, that digital ledger, that tracking system for all contracts for all negotiations for all exchanges between human beings i said this no you didn't on the blockchain that's what you said right um and so that permanence look a lot of people might not want that permanence but in especially in the case of value right trackable real value held in a digital form that becomes fungible 
all those digital tokens or digital items in some way, shape or form can be fungible with each other. Um, I think it's, you know, and I think we've yet to scratch the surface of what is the value proposition of that concept. We talk about, people talk about digital gold. So they're like, okay, there's that store value. People talk about, oh, there's a payment uh, systems component. Okay, replace a lot of the banks. There's so many uh, different value components of Bitcoin. Um, there is no chance in any world that it is only worth a trillion dollars, which is what the value is today. So there's no chance. Like I, you know, the, uh, the uh, I mean, Microsoft, I think is now at two and a half trillion. So one company, uh, there's no chance that it's only a $1 trillion asset. So is it a $10 trillion asset? I think it's easily a $10 trillion asset. I think well, my, my, what I've been, since 19, I've been saying minimum Bitcoin should go to between 300 and 500,000, you know, on almost every podcast for the last few years. And I would still say that, you know, I think that's definitely going to happen. Um, now, whether it's next year or three, four or five years, I just don't know. I've had a, I've had a terrible record in the timing of this just because things have happened much faster than I was anticipating. So, um, and I also think of things as Bitcoin plus all the other cryptocurrency projects plus all the value of the companies in the space. That's the whole digital asset ecosystem is worth call it two and a half trillion today. And there's no reason why that can't be worth 20, 30 trillion in the next you know, my fear, not fear, but, if, you know, if I think like, how, how am I going to be wrong? I'm going to be wrong because it's going to be 100 trillion in 10 years, not 20. And I can't even think about what that looks like, right? That's like <laughs> flying to Mars, you know, a, a 100 trillion, I, it's hard to, hard to imagine, but I think it's very possible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for, for me, when I look at the fundamentals, there's, there's four things, right? It's every 10 minutes, it's 2016 blocks, it's four years, and it's 21 million. And if you are basing an investment thesis on those four truths, uh, we've never been here before. I agree. No, I mean, so there's another component, right? This, I, I didn't even mention that. Uh, so... Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's quite phenomenal. Um, that, and we're getting to experience it. And I think we just all need to do whatever it is that we can to increase adoption and let people know that this phenomenal thing is out there, right? You know, and the people also, I kind of think the people who are saying, oh, it's nonsense to me are, are sort of the people, if you think back, it's like 1920, and there are all these cars on the road and they're still on their horse, right? And they're saying, well, I'm not driving a car because you know what, um, you know, the, uh, the, um, the likelihood is in a car that you're gonna die or that you're gonna kill someone. And that's like people who say to me who aren't in this space, oh, the government's gonna ban it. 
they're still saying the government is going to ban it. Um, it's the, the, it, those are the horse riders of 1920. The government's going to ban it. That's they're riding their horse. They're you know, uh, and they're saying yeah. So I think it's that kind of thing, and that often is it. That's an analogy that's used in the space often. Yes. All right. Uh, I've seen the time. I know you got to jump. Can I fire one last question at you? Yeah, absolutely. If you had one last orange pill to give to somebody, who would you give it to and why? Well, in theory, you should give it to the person who has the single person who has the widest scope to have the greatest influence. And uh, that's probably the Pope. Nice. Um, you could you could say Xi, but he's too old, and China already made their decision. I think it'll be a historically bad decision for them. But the Chinese have made bad decisions in their past before. I mean, as we all have. But uh, I mean, that's a that's a cataclysmically bad decision. So the single person, I can't think of any one person who has wider reach. If the Pope came out with a big orange bee plastered onto his chest, I have to say, you probably get, I mean, you know, what a, there, there, there are a lot of Christian, a lot of Catholics out there, right? I mean, I, can you think of anybody else? I've had such a wide ranging uh, bunch of answers Is, to, to this question. The Pope has been mentioned before. Oh, uh, but you know, you know what? Oh, I would, you might say then, well, who has the greatest digital mm -hmm. uh, audience? But then even someone like Elon Musk only has 70 million followers on Twitter, mm -hmm. right? So, you know. And he likes yeah. Doge too much. So like, yeah, he, he, he likes Doge too much. He's, he's. What he's, are the other, what are the, what have been some of the other answers in, uh, who, oh, who, it's ranged from um, probably the most uh, consistent answer has probably been Joe Rogan over the uh, the last. Oh, couple but of years. that's nothing. That's a that's a those are guys who are already Bitcoiners. I mean, <laughs> you know, come on. Then there's been uh, the Pope. There's been the Dalai okay. Lama. Uh, there has been um, oh, who has some certain football stars, uh, people like Ronaldo and, and Messi, and right. people like that. Uh, but you know, more humbling, Dan, a lot of people, when they think about it, they just turn around and say, you know, my dad, my wife. Right. Uh, you know, and uh, that, that, that's because the, the struggle is real. If right. The, the, only struggle one. Is, the struggle is real. It took me a little while to get my kids on board, but right. I think they're on board now. <laughs> so the struggle is real. I mean, that's a great uh, place to leave it. It, it certainly is, mate. I, I really appreciate you coming on and for for taking up the time. Um, no, what, it's been um, great. What what do you want to leave the audience with? Uh, how can they come and find you and interact with you? Oh well, you know, I'm on Twitter. I haven't been that active on Twitter, DTAP Cap, um, only because I've just I've had so much to do with 10T, and it's just been the space is growing so quickly. It, it's just I, I'm drinking from a fire hose every day. Uh, I'd like to get back to putting something out on Twitter at least once. I used to try like once a day, once every other day, um, you know, on investment, gold, Bitcoin, crypto. Yep. But 
Um, the pledge love, the pledge love a bit of macro, Dan. Like, yeah, uh, you know, I, I get, know. don't hold back. You you, you always know. got good engagement. Uh, so, <laughs> and for any lightning startup companies out there that are you know just about to tip over that five hundred million dollar in revenue. Oh yeah, please. <laughs> the minute you think you're there, the small I got a lot of smaller guys. There's nothing I can do about that. Uh, All right. Absolutely. All right. Well, it was great chatting. You too, Dan. Take care. Thank Have a good day. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening and thanks again, Dan, for coming on, giving up that time to uh, go on that little journey through your career. Talk about the old days a little bit. I love talking about those old days on the desk. They're, they they were they were crazy times, uh, good fun. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I look back fondly, but um, of course, I also look back now through the lens of a Bitcoiner and just think, man, Wow, what uh, what a world, what a world, what a fiat world. And uh, yet it still rages on uh, all of these uh, legacy financial markets that, um, uh, you know, all of that money sloshing around, being printed, counterfeited into circulation that could just be held on the Bitcoin blockchain to, to store people's wealth and to protect their families. This is uh, this is what we're here to do. This is the message that we're trying to spread. And people such as Dan that come from that world who have seen Bitcoin and uh, have understood it, as he said, it took him a long time, takes all of us a long time. You have to put in that work. Your understanding of it is a proof of work algorithm of your own brain. Uh, but it needs a rewiring uh, if we're going to move forward as a society, as, uh, as humanity, as we uh, adopt this, this new technology, this new medium of exchange. And uh, yeah, appreciate anybody that comes on the show to, uh, to talk about it and put that, push that message forward. Thank you, as always, to the show sponsors. You know who they are. That's Coin Corner Exchange out of the UK, based in the Isle of Man, the Oil of Man. Uh, doing great work. They've got a lot of news coming out. They're doing a lot of work with Lightning as well. So, I don't know. Dan, maybe Coin Corner. I'll, I'll connect the two Dans. you got Swan Bitcoin in the US. SwanBitcoin.com forward slash Bitten. That will unlock $10 for you. Get stacking away with the Swan team. you got Bitcoin Reserve across Europe. Use the link in the show notes. There's an affiliate link there that will get you, I believe, $10 off or some kind of commission uh, I'll have to check that with uh, with Nick and the guys and Andrew. Uh, the conference, you know where to go. Hit the link in the show notes. Use code BITTEN at checkout for 10% off. Relay across Europe, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H. Download the app, start stacking, set it up every week, every month, whatever you can do, and just get control of your coins onto a hardware wallet. You can use the Bitbox O2 Bitcoin only edition from Shift Crypto. I said at the beginning of the show, check out bitcoinday.io, especially if you're in the States or gonna visit the States because one of these meetups just might be around the corner from wherever you are. Or you could just start following following them around and uh, getting to know the guys. You, you can use the, uh, the code OB10 to get 10% discount on their conferences. Catch you on the next show, guys. Thanks so much for listening.